Welcome to the School of ICT Conversation Bites podcast. I'm Tessa, here to bring you bite-sized personal stories, latest research and career advice from the talented people in our Griffith University School of ICT community. Today we have a conversation with Associate Professor Geraldine Teresi about her pathway to academia and her interest in human-computer interaction. Thank you so much for meeting with me to have a conversation, Geraldine. We talk a fair bit, but, you know, it's nice to also be able to ask some more questions and get to know a bit more about you and what you get up to in your research life and life in general. So, yeah, welcome. Total pleasure. Tessa, looking forward to it. Awesome. Um, Well, to start with, could you just introduce yourself and just tell us how you came to Griffith? Okay, well, my pathway to being an academic is meandering. I really never intended to be an academic when I first left school. In fact, I didn't have a clue of what I wanted to do when I left school uh, at all. So when I finished school, I I did a, a science degree for the only reason that I enjoyed science and I did all the science subjects at school and it was kind of like the logical place to go. So once I did that, I came to the end of it and my parents said, okay, get a job. I was like, oh, what do I do now? So then I thought, oh, I've got a good idea. I'll become a secondary school teacher. So I enrolled in a Bachelor of Education, did my two years, went out, got a job in a high school, decided that that was probably not exactly what I was after career-wise. It was a bit daunting to be with these teenage children in a high school maths classroom at that point. So I taught for nearly a year and then I thought, no, no, change a career already. I've hardly started, but I'll change my career. Had no idea what I really wanted to do. So I went back to my one of my lecturers in the education faculty and said hey I don't think teaching's for me I've got to figure out what I'm going to do but have you got any work I can do in the meantime and so she introduced me to computers and to multimedia and I had a casual job with her uh, with a fantastic program excuse me that was about Uh, delivering the education degree to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in community. And at that point, the multimedia scene was just starting to develop, so it was very much a cutting-edge thing. And so began, I guess, my fascination with technology and in many ways the pathway to to being here as as an academic because after that I... The, the manager of the unit came down to the Gold Coast campus of Griffith University and one day I got this phone call and uh, said, hey, do you want to join us down here on the Gold Coast at Griffith? And I said, yeah, why not? I did that. So I was in the School of Education doing interactive media development and some project management and instructional design. That led to more work within Griffith University and I stayed in that developer role for for quite a number of of years, at which point I started to get a little bit bored. Yeah, fair enough. And I thought, hmm, I looked around, I could see all these academics and I was working with academics at that point. Oh, they don't look like they've got it too bad. <laughs> so I decided, I thought, hmm, 
Mm. I wonder if there is opportunity to join the ranks of academia. In the meantime, I've done a master's in education, uh, not a PhD, but I thought, look, if you're not in it, you can't win it. So I started putting all these applications for base lecturing positions. Didn't hear anything for a long time, including for the one that was advertised at Griffith. But one day I got a call from HR and they said, oh, congratulations, you have an interview. And I'm like, an interview for what? Because I thought they'd throw <laughs> my application out by this point in time. And they said, oh, for the lecturing position in the School of ICT. Uh, and I guess the rest is history. So here I am by a rather meandering pathway in a career that actually I've realised I probably don't want, well, I don't want to do anything else is probably what I wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. I just didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome that you can try a few things and then make your way in and just goes to show that the direct path isn't the only path and you can you make your way there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about uh, not so much knowing exactly where you want to end up but knowing that you are searching for a, a satisfying career and you're, you're looking for something and then taking the, recognising the opportunities and then taking those opportunities as they come along. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what do you do now? How would you describe your day-to-day? Not boring. Not boring, that's good. <laughs> is how I would describe it. There's definitely plenty of variety because... Well, as an academic, we always have three areas that we need to attend to, one of which is the the teaching area, and then there is research or scholarship, which and the scholarship belongs more to the to the teaching area, and then there is your service, which is service to the university, service to your discipline, and service to to the community. So there, there's always a lot of very different things that you you deal with on a on a daily basis. And of course, in the academic role, not only is there the teaching, but I've also done some program director roles as well. Uh, In the last year, I was fortunate enough to get the role of being head of discipline. So that gave me some opportunities to, to really more broadly engage with students and with my own colleagues on a on a different level in terms of guiding the the discipline of IT and what it might look like in our school and what we're trying to achieve in our school through that and then to make things a little bit more interesting <laughs> last year in, in February which feels like a long time ago I was asked to take on the acting deputy head of school role initially for a month yeah but a month has turned into almost a year or a year very very soon but that's been an amazing experience to uh, work in a, a slightly different way within the university I still really enjoy teaching and I love interacting with students but being in this role has really given me the opportunity to better understand how I, how the university works and in many ways it enables opportunities to work with students at a different level and still make a, a difference at a, at a broader level as well as the difference that you make when, you, when you're teaching on a one-to-one type basis. 
Yeah, definitely. I think one thing that I didn't realise until relatively late in my studies, even though I've been here for a very long time, um, is that, you know, all of the lecturers are also doing their own research and that may or may not be what they're actually teaching as well. So what what research are you working on and what kind of spaces do you work in in, in research? Okay, so in my academic profile, rather than have a, a straight research focus because of my focus on teaching. So I'm a teaching-focused academic, mm-hmm. meaning that uh, 60% of my weekly time is dedicated to teaching and, and the related teaching activities. So it's not just contact time, but the actual things that go around teaching and interacting with students. Then I have got a 20% role profile around scholarship rather than than research okay in essence scholarship is research around learning and teaching okay it involves the 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 practical element and exploring different strategies to improve learning and teaching but there's also things like publication around that there is ability to put in for grants to explore maybe some different strategy or new strategy and assess the effectiveness of that strategy or explore the use of a new technology in learning and teaching. So even though it's called scholarship, in essence, at least in my mind, I see that as really research in learning and teaching. And as research, that means that your aim is not only to broaden your own knowledge of learning and teaching but to make a a broader impact and disseminate what you're learning through your activities. So for the past, well nearly for all the time that I've been at Griffith University, my most of my research has been in that scholarship domain, uh, published a fair bit around learning and teaching, uh, even around learning and teaching and the theoretical aspects because when you're in practice the, the theory, even though it feels like it's probably vague and, and a bit sort of fluffy, once you're, you're practising that theory becomes a really important part of being able to improve your, your own learning and teaching. Aside from that, my, I guess if I talk about research, my main research interest is in human-computer interaction yeah. and in educational design. That really... I think has emerged very much from my experiences when I started to do the work in the interactive multimedia domain Mm -hmm. and it it blends really nicely with teaching in many ways that human computer interaction user interface design instructional design they really merge with the the basic principles of of learning and teaching so it it really was I guess the the teaching side of me that kind of moved across to the the human computer interaction and user interface design almost as an extension of, uh, of what you do in teaching and the reason I enjoy it is fairly similar to why enjoy teaching because you're working with people and you're trying to really understand what people's needs are Mm. and then you try to develop or do something that can help people meet those needs and 
to me that it's the same whether it's user interface design or whether it's teaching that remains the goal with the the people at the center basically yeah yeah that's really cool that they can kind of cross over a bit and um, give you an opportunity to work in those spaces a lot so human computer interaction and interaction design and usability and all these kind of words um, they can be a bit, bit confusing on what that actually means as a field could you give us like a super brief overview on what that actually means in a practical sense. Okay, in actually the, the confusion around those terms is fairly widespread. When you try to do any research in that area, the first thing that hits you is what do all these terms mean? How do they relate to each other? It doesn't help that in the, the, the sort of public domain literature there's lots of blogs and things uh, with people sharing expertise around user interface design and user experiences so there's a whole bunch of this this terminology how do we resolve that there's definitely no one clearly accepted definition of each of those things the way to to resolve what all these things mean i think is to put it in the context of essentially what is the basic thing that we're trying to do. And I think if we're going to summarise that, it really is about human-centred design in the end. Sometimes I think you know, human-computer interaction and user interface design, all those sort of terms are great, but they really don't have the focus on what this is actually about. So the, the whole thing, all of those things come together under human-centred design. Mm-hmm. Then if we, and, and this is, I guess, my conceptual model, then if we dig into that and go, okay, well, what are the different aspects of this? So human-computer interaction, in a sense, is the more formal field mm-hmm. that has emerged in that space. It came out of the proliferation of computers to the general public so when computers first came out and they were being used, they were mostly being used in scientific applications and so it was a very much a, an expert-type domain. But once the, the PC came out, then people in public domains were using it. They had all kinds of skill levels and so came this idea that, well, wait on, we need to think about how do we make this easier for for people to interact with. Most of the theories that inform human-computer interaction actually come out of of psychology. And so it's a a very much input-output-based system of understanding. Then related to human-computer interaction, I'm not sure if it's really a, a subset of that, but certainly related to it, is the things that we talk about user experience, user interface design, usability and all these other other concepts. In some ways, maybe they are subsets. Some people consider them a subset of human-computer interaction. Other people actually go the other way. Mm, they okay. see uh, usability and user experience and then they, they see the human-computer interaction as a, as a subset of that. But essentially, user interface design is about the mechanism by which you enable the user to, I guess, have a conversation 
with whatever it is that they're interacting with or that they're using. Mm. So that means that the, the user has to have some way of putting, making an input, whether that's a, a keyboard, a mouse, voice, gestures or whatever, and then there has to be some response from that. So it's a, it's a feedback type loop. And the, the structures, both visual and audible, that you put in place to enable the user to effectively have that conversation with whatever the device is, it comes really under that, that sense of user interface design. Yeah. The principle of user interface design and even the principles behind that broader area of human-computer interaction sit in that usability domain. Mm. So then we talk about, well, what is it that makes sense to the user? How can we do this in a way that the user doesn't have to expend a great deal of effort and isn't frustrated in order to achieve what their, their actual goals are? Yeah. So that's kind of that, that concept of usability. But then there's stuff like user experience. It's like, oh, man, what, what is that? <laughs> it's another one that can another throw in. One. And they've all got their acronyms. Oh, so you yeah. UX, UI, HCI. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody uses them ad hoc in, yeah. <laughs> in multiple different ways that they go. So the user experience really is the end feeling of the user, at least that's how I see it. How do they experience this? How did they feel about the interaction that they've yeah. had. Was it frustrating? Was it pleasing? Was it something that they'd go back and do again? Or would they go, no way, I'm not touching that again because that was uh, an absolutely horrible experience and I'm, mm. I'm not going through that frustration again. Yeah. So very loosely, that's... <laughs> I'm not sure if that quite yeah. delineates them clearly, but at least that's my mental model, if yeah. you like, of how I see the relationship among all these different terms. What would you say is the biggest misconception people have about HCI and that space? I think the biggest misconception is that it's about the technology. Yeah. Because invariably you hear the, the discussions about the technology. How do, look at this web page. How does this web page look? And often I think it's a case of almost you, you can't see the, the forest for the trees type or whichever way that goes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never good at these things. Um, it, it, very much technology can take the centre stage because, well, technology is kind of exciting and it has all these attributes and you want to explore it and then you kind of forget that actually people have to, to use this and by people we mean people other than yourself. So probably the other big misconception is that if it looks okay to you as the designer and you think it works fantastically well, don't forget that that's just you and even though you're the designer and presumably the expert the real expert is actually your user mm. and that can be that can be tough as a designer to keep on taking yourself out of your own perspective because we all do it we're human yeah. we have our perspective and we'll we'll look at things from that so yeah I think I've, I've heard much of the same sort of thing as well and like that kind of sometimes it turns into technology for technology's sake like something will become a VR app when it's like, okay, that doesn't really 
help. It just it just looks fancy. Or um, I've got a set of electronic scales, kitchen scales, that for some reason they're Bluetooth enabled. I I couldn't I yeah I couldn't tell you what I'm really supposed to do with that. I tried the app once. It didn't give me any more information than the scales itself gave me. But for some reason that's there. So. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's definitely that perception of technology as the 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 toy, if you like. Mm. Uh, similar to your scales, I have a washing machine that is similarly Wi-Fi enabled. Oh, okay. And you can download apparently different wash cycles, which for the life of me I can't even think what they would be <laughs> yeah. because it's pretty much wash. Yeah, uh, not not quite sure. I think you can download different finishing tones for the for the washing machine. Okay. It's kind um, of fun. It, it's it's got a lovely panel with lots of lights that come on when you when you turn it on, and you know it says intelligent washing machine kind of thing. And um, yeah, I actually haven't even tried to connect to the Wi-Fi because I honestly can't see what what yeah. I will do with it. So that is exactly the kind of thing. It's just using it because it's exciting and forgetting about the fact, well, hang on, this is something that somebody's going to use to achieve some kind of objectives. What is it that they need to do rather than what is it that the technology can do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where do you see this technology going in five years? What's what's the future of human-computer interaction? Well, <laughs> changing. Changing, yeah. I think if there's one thing that will characterise the future, it's constant change and rapid change. Um, I'm hoping that the the area of human-computer interaction and really technology development in general keeps the human in the loop Mm. because as technology becomes more powerful, becomes used for a much wider range of purposes, then we we have to start to seriously think about the, the ethical side of that because at that point the technology and the, well, really the people who design the technology are really exerting a certain amount of, of power mm. and it becomes a, a thing of social responsibility. And I'm seeing the idea of social responsibility, humanising technology, starting to emerge in that domain of human-computer interaction or user interface design, whatever it is that you want to to call it. So it's really good to see that as the technology is becoming more and more sophisticated, Mm. there seems to be some evolution and recognition of the, the responsibility that goes with it, the possibilities are are literally endless for what technology can do. And it's not just development of new technologies, it's also new applications of existing technologies, things being applied in different fields. One would hope that what we were talking about before in terms of the the misconception and people being attracted by the, the shiny technology becomes a a bit more moderated. One would hope that future technology developments are really informed by some research and evaluation and and some some thoughtful uses. Mm. 
in terms of what that field will look like, I think I was reading a, a while ago, it was actually a book on emerging technologies and it talked about design in emer emerging technologies. And it has a, a really nice summary in there of where this will go. And it talks about things like systems thinking. Mm. Uh, when you design something, you're no longer just designing for that device or that particular situation. We've got interconnection of everything. So that, that means you have to think about design from a, a more ecosystem point of, yeah, okay. of point of view. It also mentioned the, the socially responsible design. Uh, and it also talked about applying technology to real human problems. So things like we're talking about the scales with the Bluetooth and the washing machine that's Wi-Fi enabled. Great, it's a toy, might be kind of fun, but it's not really addressing like a, a deep human need. So as our world develops and society becomes more complicated, we're more globalised, then we, we really need to focus on those so-called wicked problems mm. and really dedicating some good attention to, well, how can our growing knowledge and application of technology help to at least alleviate some of those wicked problems? Yeah. yeah, I think that creative dynamic thinking seems to come up more and more as I mean, the buzzword is like soft skills in in employability and um, being able to think in those kind of ways. What kind of careers or projects might be coming up for someone in a space that will need that kind of thinking? There's definitely careers, if we go back to the, the sort of human-computer interaction, in that user experience space. In fact, user experience and that kind of knowledge is increasingly becoming almost an employability skill. Mm. If you have a look at a lot of the, the ads that are on seek.com that involve any kind of technology, whether it's app development or even some of the, the programming ones, there often is the expectation that you have some knowledge about that, that user experience side of things. In IT, there's job roles like a business analyst. Mm. That particular domain is or is now already being challenged by new technologies and how we think about technology and how it will integrate with what the business goals and things are and how people will use it. So there's, there's definitely going to be more roles, maybe without even names yet, mm. around that how people can make use of this to solve the, the new problems or the emerging problems that might occur because of, of the way things are, are actually changing. On the technical side, obviously, there's a whole plethora of different jobs that will come into the, the future, everything from, you know, at the moment we're like cloud computing and blockchain and all these other technologies, yeah. but there will be a lot of work coming out in, in much different areas, but in all of them, that system thinking creativity is going to be uh, an essential capability. Mm. Yeah. 
So yeah, important to be able to think through some of these things and to see that bigger, wider system perspective and context. So what would you say is the number one takeaway for, for our listeners today? Number one takeaway, probably on a, on a personal side, the number one takeaway is that if you have a, a passion for something, recognise that passion and don't be afraid to, to give it a go and to get into it because the worst that happens is maybe you don't like it or maybe you don't get the job that you were after. That's like the worst. Mm. But the best thing is that you end up finding your, your niche and a career that, that's actually uh, really satisfying from a technical point of view, say definitely the main takeaway is technology is quite clearly embedded now and forever in human activity and as such it really is a, a pivotal point for, for being able to contribute, I guess, to, to broader society and, and to the well-being of, of humanity as a whole and there's tons of exciting opportunities in there. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Geraldine. It's always great to hear about what our academics are up to. So thank you very much. Pleasure talking with you, Tessa. Thanks for listening to the School of ICT Conversation Bites podcast. If you enjoyed this, please share it around and we would love to hear your feedback. Do you have any burning questions? Who should we interview next? Let us know through the link in the description.